this evening. All right, uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, please. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a part two for um, looking at the life and testimony of Moses, um, who one of my children as a baby used to call Moha um, through a sucking thumb thing. Like you say, what'd you learn from Sunday school today? I learned about Moha. Well, look, there's a lot to learn about Moses, Moses, drawn up out of the water, Moses. Who was this man? Was he perfect? No. Were any of the heroes of the faith perfect? No. Bible characters are characters. I mean, they were true to life historical figures, but they were born in sin, just like all of us. We put one leg, you know, in our pants and then the other one to put our pants on. I mean, we, we just are flesh and blood human beings. Only Christ was the perfect divine human, fully man, but perfect, sinless. And um, he is our model and our example, but that does not disqualify others who were like us, who, who trusted God in the way that we have to, even through our sin that we are denying and repenting of, we're trusting God and thrusting forward, following the Lord. And we want to persevere on the marathon of Christian persevering faith all the way to glory. And so Hebrews is teaching us to do that. Well, in our section, there is a unique tie together and, and our whole section um, surrounding Moses in Hebrews 11 begins at verse 23 and continues on to verse 29. The tie together here in my mind as I looked at this text is under the command of fear not. In essence, to live by faith is to live not by fear. Fear and faith are a contradiction. They cannot coexist together. I'm not talking about reverencing God, that fear of God. I'm talking about the command that's the most off-repeated command in all of Scripture. It is to fear not. If you were to do a Bible search on what's the most regular command throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it's fear not, don't be afraid, some variation of that. 360 Five times there are fear nots throughout the Bible. Exodus 14, 13, we're, we're going to reference this one. But Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which will, he will work for you today. He's talking about let's cross the Red Sea on dry land. Exodus 20, 20, when thunder and lightning was at Mount Sinai and the, the, the tablets were given, the law was given. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Joshua 1, 9, one of my favorite, the most um, exciting verse in my heart is Joshua 1, 9, my favorite verse in scripture. It is, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. A commission to Joshua to take the mantle from Moses leading the second generation of Israel into the promised land. Isaiah 41, the nation was ripped up with idolatry and Isaiah is, Isaiah 41 says, fear not, the Lord is speaking to Isaiah and through him, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Luke 2.10, and the angel of the Lord said to them, this is at the birth of Christ, to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 2 Timothy 1.7, 1 
Paul says to Timothy, what? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Revelation 117, this is where John falling before Christ, the Alpha and Omega. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Uh, The complimenting command to all of these fear nots is to believe. The gospel of John alone says, believe on the Lord Jesus or have faith in the Lord Jesus over ni- or 90 times. That word is used 90 times in the gospel of John. Matthew cites believing or, or having faith 11 times, Mark 12 times, Luke 9 times. Over the four gospels, believe is almost used half as many times as the fear nots. This is a complimentary command. Fear not, exercise faith. Exercising faith is the opposite of fearing. I look at verse 23 back in Hebrews 11. You find this with the parents who were hiding Moses as a a newborn baby. Pharaoh had given the edict for all newborn baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. This was population control. It's a form of genocide trying to wipe out this race of people or at least uh, stave, you know, stave them off, stem the tide of the, of the Israelites and their growing power. And the parents saw that this child, Moses, in verse 23, was beautiful, which means favored. They somehow, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe, looked at Moses and they knew God had a plan. They saw him through faith, so much so that they built a basket and they sent him down the Nile, but they were sending him right down the Nile highway into the palace court, believing that God would have a plan, would spare Moses' life, and he did, and we learned about that a couple weeks ago. Moses, he grew up by faith and exercised faith, as you see in verse 24, refusing to be called Pharaoh's daughter. He's he's saying, I'm grown up and I'm not going to live by privilege of rank, the draw of sensual passions or pleasures, or the security of wealth, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So you consider the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he's looking to the reward. He embraced suffering. He embraced stigma. He embraced being a Hebrew. He identified with his culture, with the slaves. And he did so because he knew the Messiah somehow was coming through that. God's salvation was through this identification and these people. Well, as we learned, Moses was a holy man. Not perfect, but he was holy. He lived by what he refused and by what he embraced. And in that way, he was holy. But what I want to highlight today for us is how faith is brave. Not only does faith not fear, but faith is brave. To have genuine saving faith and to be exercising that faith as a Christian is to be brave. It will make you bold. You will do things that are not ordinary to culture. Faith is brave. It's a brave faith. And there's three examples and three categories that come from verses 27 through 29 here. Three examples where faith makes you brave. First of all, verse 27, you're brave in the face of an adversary. You're brave to face an adversary. The fear of man is a paralyzing fear. Many people, many of you are suffering, I'm sure, from the fear of man. There is someone that you are 
trapped by in your own mind, in your heart, where you feel afraid. You're afraid of criticism. You're perhaps afraid of losing a job. You're afraid of losing your reputation. You're afraid of losing popularity. Fear, it's paralyzing. It really will quench the Holy Spirit in your life. We fear people we don't even respect. MacArthur said this, he said, fear is a great pressure. And all of us are tempted at times to bend when standing for the Lord requires us to say or do something that is unpopular or dangerous. But true faith does not fold under the world's pressure. Let's look at this in verse 27 because it seems to be an interesting verse to look to, especially as you harmonize it with what happened in Exodus. It says, by faith, he, Moses, left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. If you trace this back up to verse 23, you see that Moses' parents, they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's why that they acted the way they did in faith, sending Moses into Egypt in the first place. And then in verse 27, you see that Moses had learned to not be afraid by faith. It reminds me of Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a great book. It's a book that a lot of people claim, kind of like the Desiring God book, as a life changer. Well, Moses' God was big, and it made Pharaoh, for him, look small. So much so that verse 27, it says he left Egypt. The King James Version says, uh, translates left as literally to forsake Egypt. Moses was abandoning Egypt. He said no to rank, to sensual pleasure, to the security of wealth for God. He said no to Pharaoh's wrath that was chasing him. He forsook all, like Peter, James, and John, when confronted by Christ, Luke 5, 11, they had brought their boats to the land and they left Everything and followed him. Same word left. They left. They forsook everything. The disciples dropped their nets, right? The fishermen. And they said, we will follow Christ. We will be fishers of men. This is the call of the Christian life. It's difficult, but we have to be before the face of God before we are before the face of man. We cannot fear man. We have to fear God. If God is our God. We say with Paul, what can man do to me? God is our protector. Faith makes you brave. The heroes of the faith, not just listed in Hebrews 11. We talked about Joshua 1.9. He was strong and courageous. Daniel and his three friends. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. And they were willing to go into the fiery furnace. Daniel 3.18. David charging Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 45, David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is a teenager who's coming at Goliath. Now, are these stories just to inspire us as if they happened like movies that we watch? Or are these characters really models for whom we are supposed to be? Fearless, faith, believers, trusting in God. God is big. People are small. 
we're supposed to respect one another. We're supposed to build each other up and love one another. But none of you are gods, right? God is God and we are not God. So we're to trust him. Reading from Exodus, there's a fair question though. Was Moses afraid a little bit? Now I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 2 verse 11 just to look at the story because it actually says in Exodus 2 that initially he was afraid. If you look at verse 11 when he first fled. Now some people will say, well, the author of Hebrews must be talking about the second time that Moses came back after he had been 40 years pushing sand up between his toes in Midian, right? He married Zipporah, became and married a shepherdess, um, you know, Jethro's daughter and tended Jethro's sheep, his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years, and then met God in the burning bush experience, Exodus chapter three, and he was commissioned to go and be a deliverer of the soon to be Israelites, the wandering wilderness children and and God's people. Wasn't that when he was not afraid when he left that time? Well, certainly he was not afraid. He was bold then, but the chronology of Hebrews seems to measure towards this being the first time he left. If back in Hebrews 11, verse 24 through 26, he didn't stay in Pharaoh's court. We talked about that. Then if you see it as the first time, Moses leaves, verse 27, he's fleeing to Midian, and then he comes back in verse 28 of Hebrews 11, where he institutes or keeps Passover, right? So it just seems to chronologically fit that this is the first time he left and was not afraid. But if you read Exodus 2, 11, it says he was afraid. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on the burdens. This is when he was a young man still in Egypt. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, seeing no and seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, obviously word had gotten out of him. What he had done. Then Moses was what? Afraid and thought surely the thing is known. When Moses, when Pharaoh heard of it, He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Let's stop there. So there was fear. There was fear. So what is the author of Hebrews talking about if there was fear? Well, I think what we're seeing here is that Moses' initial reaction was Fear. He was afraid. That again shows Moses was human. He was, he was afraid. But there are some markers in Hebrews 11 that tell us why Moses' testimony, once he went into the land of Midian, was one of faith. That's what we're talking about. We're trying to understand what happened initially and then what ultimately Hebrews 11 is trying to teach us. Turn back to Hebrews 11. Look at verse 27, it says, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. He must have gotten over it for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Where did Moses endure? In Midian, 
40 years of persevering, hard living endurance. Did Moses know he was going to find his wife in the land of Midian? No. He wasn't saying, I'm going to leave Egypt and the riches, rank, and wealth and go to the desert. I'm going to find my wife there. No, providentially, God provided on the backside of the world his wife. Okay, that's good news for all of us, right? God provides in ways that are surprising to us, that are unexpected. And the Lord did that. And the Lord used Jethro in Moses' life. But more importantly, God was growing Moses' faith where he was afraid and then he was growing to be brave and have a brave faith, a faith that was strong for what he was going to be called to do. If you look back at Abraham's testimony, it's interesting how scripture clarifies things and gives us x-ray vision into the hearts of the heroes. These imperfect people, right? Who Abraham, he lied, you know, lied about Sarah, did wrong, did wrong, but God still used him and tested him in an extraordinary way where he said to Abraham, take your son, who is the link, who is the unexpected son, who you weren't supposed to be able to have kids and you have a kid and through Isaac, you're going to have this lineage. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So what's going on? Well, if you look at verse 19, it says, he, Abraham, considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which he figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Was Abraham a sadistic, cold-blooded killer? Was Abraham really wanting to kill his son for God? No. He knew that God would have to create some extraordinary circumstance for Isaac to still be alive or to come back from death for this to work out. And he was exercising so much faith that he was willing to even go to that extreme obedience So the Bible tells us things and we believe in the inspiration and the authority of scripture. It's clarifying for us that even though Exodus says Moses was initially afraid and that's true, this account says that he left in faith, in the faith of endurance where we're seeing more deeply into Moses' heart and what he was working through. Aren't you glad that God allows for us in his grace to stumble and then picks us up and grows us from that point? Aren't you glad for that? Isn't it good that we don't have to correct everything immediately, but we try, we repent, we turn away from our sin, and then God is faithfully fulfilling his promise for where he began a good work and he'll be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus. We're not perfect, but we're called to exude the hard path of perseverance. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're running that marathon. We don't quit. We don't give up. And we grow through things. Sometimes it's right like Moses did to retreat. Jesus, he fled his killers at the end of John 8. When they picked up stones, he somehow miraculously made it through them. He didn't get thrown off a cliff. It wasn't his time to die yet, so it was time to flee. Paul was lowered down at Damascus from a wall through a hole. Acts 9, 25, there's times to retreat, but it's never time to give up. It's never time to stop believing. And listen, it's never time not to be brave as a Christian. Faith is brave. Even in our weakness, God makes us strong. How was he strong? What does this look like? The end of verse 27 fills it out. For he, Moses, 
endured, that's persevered, as seeing him who is invisible. What does that mean? Seeing him who is invisible. And we know that Moses has a testimony of having a unique relationship with the Lord. He met with the Lord in the tent, in the inner sanctum, and received the law from God. And his face came out glowing. So there's intimacy there that's recorded for us. Exodus 33 speaks of how, verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's intimacy. That's a unique opportunity, a unique privilege. And a lot of times our inner sinful skepticism will say, well, that was good for Moses. What about me? I don't get that kind of special privilege. Ah, but we have the clarity of all of the scripture. And we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And we have the illuminating work of the word of God in our lives where he speaks to us in our hearts with conviction. So we have a connection to this intimacy. The glory of Moses is applied in 2 Corinthians 3.16, where we're supposed to grow from one level of glory to the next. Numbers 12.8 talks about how Moses would speak to God mouth to mouth and clearly and not in riddles. It's amazing what Moses had. But is that really what is being talked about here? I mean, the unique experience of Moses is where he met the Lord in a Christophany At the burning bush account, take off your sandals for you stand on holy ground, right? I am Yahweh. Tell them that Yahweh sent you. I am who I am. I mean, that's an extraordinary moment. But before all of that, Moses, during his 40 years, is enduring, right? He's enduring. He's seeking the Lord. This is the example of our Christian life where we endure where we seek the Lord. We want him to speak to us. That's what we're talking about here. It's not talking about Moses seeing God visibly. It's talking about him praying to God who is invisible. And yet though God is invisible and he's invisible to us, it's no less supernatural in the way that he speaks to us, right? There, there's examples of this through scripture. Second Kings six seventeen. you have Elisha. I was reading that earlier this morning. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Do you remember the servant who was saying, oh, you know, the, the armies of Syria are around us. The chariots have come. We're going to be blown up here. And it turns out Elisha was able to sort of move God's army around because in his bedroom, he was getting um, direct revelation from the Lord and telling the king. However, it says he prayed and so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You say, how does that apply to us? Let me tell you how it applies to us. I'm glad you asked. Seriously. I mean, what am I doing here if you're not asking that question? Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. That's daily Christian life. You take up the shield of faith. You, you hold out the sword of truth, the Machaira sword. You use the word of God. You shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. You're, you, you have put on the breastplate of righteousness. You gird your loins with truth, right? You have the helmet of salvation on. You live the Christian life. This is spirituality. This is spiritual warfare that's going on all the time. How do you know it's spiritual warfare? Well, behind the thin veil of what we can't see are what God reveals to us in Ephesians 6, 12. This is the same kind of insight that that servant had with Elisha. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's all kinds of dynamic warfare that's going on all around us all the time. And we gauge it by living the normal Christian life, which is supernatural. When I say normal, I don't mean boring. I don't mean weak in terms of being afraid. I mean, brave Christian living where we stand on truth. When you take a stand on truth, there are dynamics that are happening on, in spiritual realm. Ways that we don't even know. Ephesians 1 earlier in that great epistle, verse 17. This is Paul's prayer for that whole church. He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him. What does that mean? Spirit of wisdom, that's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's where God gives you the conviction in your heart to actually believe stuff's happening out there as you live here in the physical realm. It says, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the, his glorious inheritance of the saints? That you can see heaven, that you can see what you have, you can see who you are. It's coming face to face with God. You have to be before the face of God before you're facing man. There's an illustration of Napoleon who would stand in his tent alone before he'd go to war and he would send for his commanders to come to him. And one by one, when they came in, he wouldn't say a word, but he would look them in the eye and shake their hand. And they would go out prepared to die for the general that they loved. We need to use the word of God, meet with him in that way, in the privacy of our own tent closet and meet him face to face so that we can be soldiers for the Lord. That's what Moses was doing for 40 years, becoming brave. He was brave in the face of, secondly, not just man, but in the face of death. I want to bring up the whole issue of death here, building out of verse 28. Look at verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Death is a paralyzing fear. If fear of man is up there, and it is in daily living, death is paralyzingly terrifying for people. People are afraid to die. Unbelievers are afraid of the afterlife, of the unknown. They don't know where they are going. People will try to candy coat this dynamic with their own pleasure and their own circumstance, but death is scary for an unbeliever. For somebody who doesn't know how death is solved, the inevitability of death is even more terrifying for people. It's the inescapability of death. It's on people's minds. It's in the back of people's minds. If you've ever been in, especially the lower 48, where there are a lot of graveyard sites, there are, are many graveyards in the south region, and I would say even the northeast. I've seen them there a lot too. And the graves are outside of the church. You see cemeteries outside of the church with a little fence with weeds growing up all around it typically. Why? People were buried by the church as a reminder of why we come to church. We can't just trust in trying to solve life in terms of here and now. One day we're going to be somewhere else. 
We need to understand who we are now so we understand who we will be then. Heaven. I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine. Um, I went away to a tournament last weekend, um, played a sport, and basically we were, you know, partnered together. Me and this guy, he's a teacher um, in our community here and, and is a Jewish Jewish man. And we've, you know, played together for years and years, and we were talking and Basically, he just began to open up to me. And it, you know, it's been seven years where we've kind of had these conversations. He's an Orthodox Jew, so I'll make jokes about, hey, I was preaching on Moses you know, on Sunday, and you should come, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, I know about Moses. You know about Moses. He was raised, you know, we'll trade Hebrew words back and forth. It's kind of fun. But I was talking to him, and he just began to open up to me and say, I don't know if I believe in an afterlife. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's out there. How, and then he said, how do you guys know? With, how do you preach that way about the afterlife, about God? How do you know these things? And I said, well, I said, it actually comes back to a doctrinal truth about the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I said, I wrote, I wrote a doctoral dissertation on that. Would you want to read it? And he said, sure. So anyway, I'm going to let him read that, but I said, in summary, what we're talking about is when you become a Christian, when you believe, God flips a switch in your heart and you believe with conviction. It's illuminating work. The lights come on and you see what's invisible as visible in your heart. It's normal Christian living. Kent Hughes, he said this, I loved it. He said, seeing him who is invisible is not extraordinary, rather it is ordinary, normal Christianity. In fact, if you do not see the unseen, you are abnormal and below the divinely ordained norm. Whew. Well, right? I mean, that's pretty strong. Uncertainty is not faith. But for an unbeliever, someone like a destroyer, as mentioned in verse 28, would conjure up all kinds of fear. Hell conjures up all kinds of fear in people's minds. Don't forget in Exodus 1, Pharaoh had gone against God's people, throwing the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile for population control. Conversely, God's curse was now on the Egyptians. That's what this is talking about, answering that sin. You remember, sin brings death. So where does death come from? It comes from sin. With, why is death awful? Because it comes from sin. Sin is a curse. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death, death. That's scary. Penalty is scary. But by contrast, there is grace. The contrast of eternal punishment, the contrast of people being separated from God forever for all of eternity, the contrast of that punishment is grace. God provides a path of escape from death and the penalty of judgment through a blood sacrifice. And that's what is pictured at Passover, a blood sacrifice. The word here for sprinkled, by the way, is the word splattered. It was a lot of blood, not just a little blood, not like just a little spray gun of blood. No, it's a lot of blood from an unblemished 
costly animal sacrifice that was put up on the door as an all-in. We're all about this. We're standing out distinct in this Egyptian environment. We're saying we're going with God's plan and we are sacrificing this lamb and we're splattering it on the door in hopes that the destroyer will not kill my firstborn son in my house tonight. That's Passover. But that is all a picture of the gospel saying, I am giving myself to God based on his complete sacrificial atonement, the covering of Christ's blood over me for all of my sins. How confident that was, was Moses that the Passover was going to work, that the lamb sacrifice would work. He was so confident that in Exodus, we don't have time to unpack this, but Exodus 12, he wrote it into the law as he was describing it. And he wrote in it, wrote it in in a way that he was establishing it to memorialize it for future generations. Exodus 12, 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. He didn't know the details. Moses didn't know that the first generation was going to be laid low in the wilderness. He didn't know that most of them were not going to make it in the promised land. He didn't know he wasn't going in the promised land. They were headed that way by faith, but he knew that future generations would be there. The second generation would be there. That God's people would be there. He was confident that the atonement will work. We as Christians have to have confidence that the atonement works, has worked on our behalf. That's brave faith. That's what it means to believe in something that was unprecedented. Christ's death is a once for all sacrifice that keeps us untouched by the destroyer. That's the same faith that these were exercising in Egypt so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Who's the destroyer? The destroyer is a terrifying being. I'm not exactly sure. I did some reading. A lot of commentators skipped it. did some research. I looked around a little bit. Let me ask you this. Who's in charge of hell? Satan? The devil? No. Hell is the place of judgment for the devil and his angels. That's where they are cast into the lake of fire. The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge of hell. God made hell. In one sense, those who are in hell are separated from God's presence, heavenly presence. But people who are in hell are under wrath, judgment from God. That's what made sinners in the hands of an angry God by Jonathan Edwards such a powerful paradigm shift. Where he's saying you're like, you know, a spider dangling over the pit of hell and flames. Don't miss that. Don't be comfortable thinking that you are safe if you are not in the blood of Christ, graced by God. Hebrews 10.31, we've preached it. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the living God. The destroyer, Exodus 12.23, it's mentioned there. Um, it could be described as maybe an angel. Maybe the Lord sent a destroying angel. He sent uh, angels as God or God's servants. Psalm 103, 20 angels are explicitly stated, stated as causing death in scripture in second 
Kings 19.35. The four horsemen are angels. Revelation 6.8. Just thinking of the angels. I think it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that are coming in fire in Christ's return and judgment. Job 1 and 2 is where you see Satan in the presence of God discussing Job and what's going to happen. And God gives Satan permission to afflict Job, his family, his possessions, his health. Just don't kill him, which implies maybe that he could have. You have Mark 9, 22, where demons are trying to kill a little boy, a demon-possessed boy, throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the water. We don't know all of what's going on in the spiritual realm, but we know that there was a destroyer who would kill on God's behalf, kill these firstborn unbelievers. The point's to understand that no matter who the destroyer is exactly, death is under God's sovereign control. Job 14.5 says this, the number of his months is with you. He's appointed his limits and times and days. Revelation 20.14, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is under God's dominating control. And God is the only one who has solved death through the cross where we as Christians say, 1 Corinthians 15.55, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Amen. Death is terrifying. But for the believer, we have Christ and we have hope. Even though the sting of death is real, we can say with 1 Corinthians 15, we believe we will be raised in heaven. Christianity is about knowing that you're secure, that death is inevitable, but there's victory. Philippians 1.21, Paul said, you know, it might be better to be here or there, but... 121, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. It's gain to go into heaven. Third thing that we face in this life that I'm just picking up from these verses that we need to be brave in the face of. We need to be brave with our adversary. We need to be brave in the face of death and brave in the face of uncertain circumstances. Uncertain circumstances. Verse 29, this was a pretty uncertain circumstance that the children of Israel, when they were the exodus and they left Egypt. They came to the coastline, the shore of the Red Sea. And verse 29 talks about this. It says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, there is a contrast here in verse 29 between the faith of that first generation and the lack of faith of the Egyptians. The faith of God's people versus the Egyptians. The, the first generation at that point was saved in their path and the Egyptians, Egyptians were drowned. They were literally swallowed. That's what the word means here. They were drowned. They were swallowed by the sea. It's an extraordinary supernatural deliverance event. But I think it's overstating things in verse 29 to see this as the people's faith without Moses' faith, because really the context is talking about Moses. And the people's faith was a direct reaction to Moses' faith. And I want to show you that. If you'll look back with me in Exodus chapter 14, verse 9. Exodus 14, verse 9. Happiness is going back to the Old Testament and reading some narrative. Here we go. Verse 9. 
says the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen, his army overtook them and camped at the sea. I'm not going to pronounce these words right, but by Pihath Eroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, it is because there are no graves. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Doesn't sound like faith at this point. And Moses said to the people, here it is, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And I love this. It seems like sarcasm. And you have only to be silent. Just stop talking. Just stop talking right now. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through and see through the sea on dry ground. A literal miracle, literal miracle. This is not just some kind of sandbar. (laughs) I hate stuff like that. I don't watch those things on TV. And verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 19. So you have the angel of God who was going before and the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near all the other near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, literal, literal dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters became uh, waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. You know, recently, recently I was um, on vacation. I went surfing and I went out in um, some ocean water, it was very blue and there was coral reef underneath me and I underestimated how big the waves were. And I've surfed my whole life. My dad put me on a surfboard when I was five and just pushed me out there. And what I remember is trying to, you know, survive underneath his surfboard because I was tossed underneath. But from that point on, I kept doing it. And so I'm pretty comfortable out there even though I'm getting older. But what I found is these waves that were going straight up were very high. And when I would look down, there was concrete beneath. The reason I bring that up is just to say, when the Israelites stepped out there, even though God had done something miraculous, if you can imagine the ocean being a wall, even though you have dry ground wall and you're walking out on that dry ground, it took them faith to still do that and do it in the face of, uncertainty. Faith is brave. 
They, they moved from verse 10, where they feared greatly, Exodus 14, 10, to walking out on dry ground. Verse 22, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Faith made them brave. And then it says, and back in Hebrews 11, and then the end of this story, that the Egyptians were swallowed by the water as God allowed it all to crash down on them. Are you brave? Are you exercising faith? As a believer, you have the opportunity to rely on the Lord and be brave in the midst of uncertainty. So a lot of people that we use scare tactics to try to motivate, we shouldn't be motivated by fear. I heard a money guru who was you know, kind of frothing in the mouth and screaming, actually. I was watching a little video and he was saying, you know, you should be a multimillionaire by age 70. And if you're not, you're basically a loser. I mean, and there's truth. Your income, you should put it away. I get it. I believe we should save money by faith. We should be good stewards of what we have and prepare for the future. But we also need to harmonize with that with the fact that we aren't the author and finisher of when we're going to die and we can't take any of it with us. Can't live for securities like that. Can't live for worshiping money. Luke 12 tells us that. Guard against covetousness. He says, I, you know, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Luke 12, 18. There, uh, there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to, to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I'm not saying don't save. We should save. We have a Sunday school class that says save. But don't save at the expense of faith. We're called to be prudent, but we're also called to exercise faith. We're called to give. We're called to invest in here, in others, even give in the church. We give by faith. We live by faith. That's part of being brave. A lot of people are scared to die. They're scared of getting sick. And when they get sick, they become more anxious and get sicker. That's hard, but we have to counter that with faith and be brave. Be brave when you're sick. Be brave when you're healthy. Have brave faith and fear God, but don't fear death. Don't fear someone else's death. We don't want people to die spiritually. What about the unknown? What about things that are uncertain? I fear that this might happen. I fear that that might happen. What if this happens? We're not in control. God is in control. God caused the waters to stand up like a wall so we could walk. He's in control. Fears and faith should not coexist. Let's exercise brave faith in the invisible God that we know and love by conviction in the Holy Spirit. 